From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Imagine having a baby without access to something as basic as a diaper. I've been hearing horror stories of people using plastic bags and paper towels and toilet paper and stuff um, trying to absorb because they have nothing else to put on them. Today, the growing demand for diaper banks, especially during the pandemic, the impact goes beyond a baby's health. Plus, some are calling it the Martian version of the Wright brothers. We'll get perspective on a history-making moment on Mars from our resident astronomer, Doug Duncan, and find out about plans to return to the moon. Then, remembering a Colorado climber who lived her life on the edge of the map. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. The cost of diapers can add up quickly, and they aren't covered by food stamps or Medicaid. Some Colorado lawmakers are calling diapers a hidden need, and it's one many Coloradans are feeling acutely during the pandemic. Ella Baldwin of Aurora, Colorado, is 73 years old, and she knows about diapering. She's had four children, nine grandchildren, and she has a ninth great-grandchild on the way. She's also currently the full-time caregiver for one of those great-grandchildren, Penelope, who's two and a half years old. I've had her for two years now. God bless you, pumpkin. And probably will have her for another two years, it looks like, at least. That's Penelope in the background. She has hip dysplasia, and she was born without a left hip socket and underwent major surgery. She was in a body cast for three months. And we're talking from under the arms to ankles on both legs with a bar. So that meant two diapers, not just one diaper every time you change. One would go inside the cast, she says, and the other on the outside. You don't want to take any chances of the diaper leaking, whether it's wet or poopy, because then you end up with a problem of trying to get it clean out of the cast. (laughs) Penelope is out of her cast now and doing well, but diapers are still a daily need and sometimes an overwhelming expense for Baldwin on top of everything else. Before COVID, Baldwin spent nine months with Penelope living in a homeless shelter. I was accepted to two senior housing programs. I couldn't take her and I wasn't going to give her up to the system to have a place to live. Then in January of 2020, they finally got an apartment. But since the pandemic hit, Baldwin hasn't worked. She's worried about bringing the virus home and compromising Penelope's health. As a kinship provider, I get $141 a month for her. So between hers and my Social Security, we don't even have $1,000 a month in income. But she has found help at diaper banks. Just before COVID last year, we... uh, started checking out and to find out where to go get diapers because I was struggling to make our rent and pay our electric bill and, you know, and, and all that stuff. And then I saw an ad for a WeCycle on Facebook 
And so I contacted them to find out where to go and get diapers. WeCycle is one of several diaper banks in Colorado. It's based in Metro Denver. If it wasn't for WeCycle and other food banks and places that, you know, are able to get diapers to help out, we, would have, we wouldn't have been able to make it. There's a bill in the Colorado Senate to address this need. It would essentially provide $4 million over two years to the Department of Health and Human Services, intended to fund diaper banks. I'm glad that somebody's looking at it as a big need because I've been hearing horror stories of people using plastic bags and paper towels and toilet paper and stuff um, trying to absorb because they have nothing else to put on them. That was Ella Baldwin of Aurora, Colorado. She uses diaper banks to help meet the need for her great-granddaughter who she's taking care of. Today, we're joined by State Senator Brittany Pedersen, a Democrat representing Jefferson County. She's the sponsor of the diaper bank bill. Pedersen is the mother of a young children herself, as are the two other sponsors of the bill in the House. Welcome, Senator Pedersen. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Jan Towsley is founder of the Nappy Project, a diaper bank based in the Fort Collins area. Thank you for joining us, Jan. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Jan, I understand that you were volunteering at a food bank several years ago when you got the idea to start your own diaper bank. Tell me about that moment of realization. That's correct. Um, I was doing intake at the food bank for Larimer County, and someone came in and just brought a package of diapers. And I said to my colleague, what do we do with these? And he said, oh, just break it open and hand them out. And uh, didn't sound very um, respectful to me. So I asked if I could take those home, package them up and bring them back. And that's when I really first learned about diaper need and its impact on families across the country. One in three families experienced diaper needs. So I started um, purchasing diapers, bundling them up in packages of 12, which is the average daily need for an infant and, and taking them to the diaper bank. So the morning or the food bank. So the mornings that I um, volunteered, Tuesdays and Fridays became diaper days. And that's kind of how the Nappy Project was born. And Jen, you've called diapers a hidden need and that there's even some shame around that diaper need. It doesn't get the kind of attention that food banks get. Why is that? I think it's so shame-based for mothers. Mothers, parents, not just mothers, fathers as well, equate not having enough diapers to not having enough food for their babies. Um, that makes them feel like a bad parent. Diapers are a very basic human dignity need that contributes to the health of a baby. Lots of times mothers and parents report that the very first thing they purchase when they get a welfare check or receive income is diapers because that is such a huge need. Um, diapers are very costly and as you mentioned they're not paid for or subsidized by any federal or state program. They're considered a disallowed purchase by SNAP along with cigarettes, alcohol, and pet food. So it's extraordinarily difficult for families. Um, a Feeding America survey that was done at food banks a couple years ago discovered that 32% of families say they reuse a diaper and 48% say that they uh, delay changing a diaper. And both of those things obviously have a detrimental effect on babies. But um, that's how parents have to handle things. And tell me a little bit more about the health need and why is that important for the health of a child to have fresh diapers? 
Well, if, if you leave a child in a soiled diaper or a moist diaper for too long, then they are at high risk of developing either a urinary tract infection or a very severe diaper rash. And both of those things are extraordinarily um, damaging to their health. And then that increases the need for medical care. It also increases um, calls to an um, emergency room, which families can't afford. And one other thing, April happens to be a National Child Abuse Prevention Month. And one of the contributors to one of the most severe forms of child abuse, shaken baby syndrome, is oftentimes an incessant crying on the part of a baby. And when a baby has a severe diaper rash or a urinary tract infection, it's extraordinarily painful for them. And they cry and cry in a very stressed tired parent may be at their limit and pick up that baby and shake it. So actually having an adequate supply of diapers is incredibly important to the emotional and the physical health of a family. Um, there was a study done by Yale Medical School that showed that a diaper need, the lack of a sufficient supply of diapers, was the most contributing factor to postpartum depression for poverty-level parents, mothers, than even food insecurity or housing instability, diaper need was the most contributing factor. So it's a powerful thing, that tiny diaper. Wow. Senator Patterson, I want to bring you in here. The pandemic, it squeezed families and working parents to the brink in all sorts of ways. Why did you particularly decide to focus a bill on diaper need? This is something that uh, many of us read the Denver Post article that really drew attention to this issue on what families are going through right now. We know that women are have been impacted at twice the rate of men. We're dropping out at twice the rate of men in the workforce. Um, <clears throat> this is especially hitting women of color. And so this is something that we can do right now to help families who are struggling. When I read the, the Denver Post article, being a new mom, my, my son is 15 months old. And when I read this story about what families were going through because the current benefit system doesn't cover things like diapers, which are not these are essential items. This is not a luxury item. And it's so out of touch with the policies in Washington. Uh, and it's really just a policy failure that this is unnecessary suffering that's happening. And it's something very simple that we can fix. And since we aren't going to see federal action, we need to take this into uh, do what we can at the state level. And so we have the opportunity for two years to fund these diaper banks that are going to be distributing diapers across Colorado with community organizations who are already working with families in need and ensure that, you know, the thing that impacts their, the postpartum depression at a higher rate than lack of food, that we're actually addressing these needs for healthy families and healthy babies. And we're going to come back to the specifics of that bill in just a moment. But first, Jan, how do diaper banks that a bill like this would support, how do they work exactly? Do they mirror the structure of, say, a food bank where someone can show up with to a brick and mortar location and pick up what they need? Um, and how do diapers get how do diaper banks get the diapers out to the people who need them? Good questions, Avery. Um, a diaper bank is much like a food bank, but we rather a diaper pantry will dis distribute diapers directly to families. A diaper bank operates through partner organizations. So, for example, the Nappy Project has 17 partners, our LART, and we get the diapers and then we distribute them to our partners who then in turn distribute them to families in need. Our largest partner 
is the Larimer County Food Bank. And it, there we distribute about 5,000 diapers every week. And that supply is gone probably midweek. And so we have to supplement it for those families. Um, we get the diapers we can purchase at a discounted rate because of our membership in the National Diaper Bank Network. And then we purchase those diapers and get them to our partner agencies. And then the agencies in turn um, give them to the clients. And I think I missed the second part of your question, if you want to I think your that. answer, yeah, that is how the, you get the diapers out to the clients for your diaper bank. And I think that's so important. Tell me about, a little bit about how you afford the diapers that you give out to the, through the NAPI project. Well, as I said, through the National Diaper Bank Network, we're able to purchase at a discounted rate. We're able to get diapers anywhere from 15 to 18 cents a diaper. Our families that we serve, if they're out shopping and buying, um, they probably cannot, none of them really can afford to buy cases, order from Costco or Target. And, and those families that can do that and buy large cases of diapers typically pay anywhere from 29 to 30 to 32 cents a diaper. Our families who may only be able to buy one of those little packs at a convenience store oftentimes end up paying almost 40 cents a diaper. Diapers are so expensive. They can cost a family anywhere um, up to 14 of their monthly income, $80 a month or more for a child. And that's if the child is healthy and doesn't need to go through more diapers during that month. So we're able to buy in bulk and then we bring them and repackage them to then distribute to um, the different organizations. And we're also very fortunate in terms of um, getting donations from diaper drives and from drop-off locations throughout the community and through the generosity of our communities that support us. Um, we apply for grants. We accept cash donations, which we can leverage through those um, buying systems. So that's how we bring in our diapers. So Senator Pedersen, let's talk a little bit more about this bill. It currently lacks bipartisan support, but some of the opposition to your bill is focused on the cost. You're requesting $4 million over two years to fund diaper banks indirectly through the Department of Health and Human Services. So where will this funding come from and how does the bill propose to spend it? Thanks for the question. So what this would do is it would dedicate, as you said, $2 million a year for the next two years so that we can actually meet some of the need. Uh, quite frankly, the criticism around the cost is uh, ridiculous. This is insufficient to meet the need across Colorado, and we should be doing more. This is the bare minimum that we need to be doing right now to help families who are desperate for, for the support to get through this pandemic and be in recovery for you know, economic mobility. Uh, the other piece of this is that you need childcare to get back to work, and you also need diapers in order to receive childcare. And so um, this is a key piece in making sure that we're helping women get back in the work, back in the workforce, and supporting families right now so that they're they're healthy physically and also uh, mentally. And there's also been pushback from people who say this amount of money won't cover a full year's worth of diapers for the number of families that it's intended for. How have you budgeted for that? Yeah, that's also a criticism that is invalid. This is to help families get through the month. This isn't about supporting families for the entire year. Uh, most people who are in this situation, they are getting some type of TANF check, but it's insufficient to actually meet the need for diapers. And because things like WIC and SNAP don't actually cover these items, um, they, are they are struggling to get by month to month. And so this is really helping families across Colorado meet that gap that they're facing every month. 
And you've probably both fielded a lot of questions about cloth diapering. Like if disposable diapers are so expensive, why don't parents just switch to reusable diapers? What's your response, Senator Pedersen? It's actually more expensive. And a lot of uh, dry cleaners don't take this, uh, don't actually take these anymore. And so this is something that most people don't have access to a washer and a dryer who are in this situation. Uh, so unfortunately, this is, again, just out of touch with what families are going through. And Jan, I'd love for you to respond to this question as well. So um, we often get that question about cloth diapers. And just to reinforce what the senator said, um, if we want families to get back to work, we want them to get back to school, we want them to achieve uh, self-sufficiency and to, to contribute to the economic recovery that we all hope will continue, then they need disposable diapers because they need to get back to childcare. So that's an incredibly important thing. Often too with cloth diapers and um, a lot of pediatricians say they would rather have kiddos in disposable diapers because there's less um, chance or opportunity for infection because they can, those diapers are clean and they're fresh each time a, a new one is put on. But um, our families don't have access to laundry facilities. Um, many laundromats do not allow parents to wash cloth diapers in a laundromat. So our parents, A, may not have access in where they live. They don't have transportation to get to a laundromat. A laundromat may not allow them to use cloth diapers. And so in addition to the expense of having cloth diapers, it's just not simply practical for those families in order to be self-sufficient and to go to work or to school to use cloth diapers. And it's also worth pointing out that many daycares and child care centers require disposable diapers. Exactly. I want to thank you both so much for being here. Jan Towsley is the founder of the Nappy Project, a diaper bank based in the Fort Collins area. Brittany Pedersen is a Democratic Colorado state senator representing Jefferson County. She's the sponsor of the diaper bank bill. People going door-to-door in Aurora have left some residents there on edge, especially because they're asking questions about COVID-19 and vaccines. CPR's Blake Simony went to check it out. On March 16th, an Aurora resident made a public post to the neighborhood social media app Nextdoor. Since when did people go door-to-door for COVID check? I've never heard of that. It was a young guy with a clipboard. The state of Colorado already has my info. You can't trust nobody these days. That's Mandy Corbari reading part of the post. She's one of the neighbors who saw it and got a little worried. The post racked up almost 100 comments within a couple of days as more people started to get visits at their houses. They also took to Nextdoor, this neighborhood watch app, to speculate about what was going on. Corbari saw those comments, too. Scammer, keep your security door locked. No way, another scam. Sounds fake to me. Then Corbari herself got a knock on the door. My husband was sitting down here too and I was like instantly like uh, on alert and then he was also he was just like what's wrong? <laughs> like this is probably fine. Just to be safe, she talked to the person at her door through the security camera speaker. I asked them where they were from and they said they said COVID check Colorado and I was like that's a generic name. That's not even real. He left, but then my husband was like, you need to look that up. They're probably legit. A quick search proved to Corbari that COVID Check Colorado was indeed a legit organization. They're genuinely helping connect people with public health services. But the rampant concern on Nextdoor prevented some people from getting that assistance. 
Even though social media apps like Nextdoor make it easy to share information quickly, experts say they may not necessarily be designed to share responsible communication. Dietram Schoifela is a professor of science communication at the University of Wisconsin. They're designed to, to, to present information in ways that, that A, fits my priors, and B, that keeps me on the platform as long as possible. In this situation with COVID Check Colorado, the posts on Nextdoor created a much more suspicious perspective of reality than what was actually going on. Some residents eventually posted accurate comments, but more information doesn't necessarily fix misinformation. It's not just about what we, if, are we able to basically sift and winnow through information or sift through information, but do we actually want to? Schoifela points out that people join apps like Nextdoor so they can stay in the loop, not to spend time sifting through information to check how valid it is. In this case, the majority of the information on Nextdoor was not accurate. But the staff at the organization who's knocking on doors, it's called COVID Check Colorado, understands where that concern could come from. As a parent, <laughs> I'm always cautious about who's showing up. So I think asking for validation on why they're there and you know, confirmation on what the questions are about is super important. Allison Bajacharya met with a few canvassing volunteers in Northern Aurora recently. She's chief operating officer of COVID Check Colorado. They formed in summer 2020 to help get school districts and the public reliable COVID testing. When the vaccine arrived, they also started helping get people vaccine appointments. Finding a vaccine appointment is really challenging. It can be a full-time job. Uh, and we want to remove that barrier <laughs> um, because very few people have that time. Research shows that communities of color are more likely to get sick and die from COVID-19 because of historic inequities in health care. So when we're going door-to-door, we're currently trying to prioritize zip codes that are traditionally lower income and have a higher proportion of uh, households of color. Bajacharya says the canvassing effort has paid off. They've helped 4,300 people get vaccine appointments or get on wait lists. In addition to Aurora, they've also been around two Denver neighborhoods. They plan to knock on more doors in other parts of the metro area in the months ahead. Hi. Hi there. My name is Brittany. I'm with COVID Check Colorado, and we're going around to make sure folks in this neighborhood know about vaccinations being available. COVID Check Colorado doesn't need your citizenship status, insurance, or social security number, and they're not asking for money either. When Mandy Corbari realized it wasn't a scam, she went back into Nextdoor to post what she found out. I honestly, I feel really bad that I sent them away. So I just want to say I'm sorry, too. <laughs> like, that, I can't go find that guy, but I felt bad that I sent him away. <laughs> Fortunately, she had already gotten her first shot when they visited. But she says her husband probably missed an opportunity to get his vaccine a little bit sooner. For CPR News, I'm Blake Simony in Aurora. After the break, the little helicopter that could. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities for the last 40 years as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. And in this upcoming season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. The new season of On Something starts May 11th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill.
the sound from a very happy mission control at NASA early Monday as the Ingenuity helicopter made history on Mars, achieving flight for the first time on another planet. University of Colorado Boulder astronomer Doug Duncan is back to give us perspective on why this is such a big deal. Hi, Doug. Hello, Avery. Tell us about this flight and about the helicopter that made it, Ingenuity. Well, it The flight only lasted 39 seconds, which may not sound like much, but remember the Wright brothers' flight, the first powered flight on the Earth, only lasted 12 seconds. Uh, Ingenuity is a pretty remarkable helicopter. Its body is only about 5 by 7 by 8 inches, so it's very small, and I might add, very cute. (laughs) Um, It it has two rotor blades, uh, not one, like most helicopters, and they rotate opposite each other. Each one is about four feet long, and it's got solar cells and a battery. It's solar-powered, so it soaks up energy all morning, and then it can fly for one to two minutes. Um, NASA calls it a technology demonstration, and that's because there's never been a flight on another planet, not on Mars. And so NASA wanted to prove mostly that it's even possible. From a scientific standpoint, why is it so important that a helicopter is able to fly on Mars? It can help Mars rovers explore much further. You see, Perseverance, the current Mars rover, all Mars rovers have this challenge that Mars is so far away it takes radio more than five minutes to go there and another five minutes to come back. So you can't drive a rover like a remote control car because of that time lag. So the rovers have to drive really slowly. The top speed of Perseverance is about a tenth of a mile an hour. So that means it would take 40 minutes to drive a football field. But if a helicopter in the future uh, uh, with a future rover could rise up and survey the territory uh, like we do with drones, uh, then you know what's coming and the rover could drive much faster and explore a lot more. Okay, I can see the draw. So you mean a future rover might be able to drive faster with the help of a helicopter and that would allow it to explore more terrain? Exactly. NASA's goal is to have humans on Mars sometimes in the 2030s. Let's say astronauts get there. Might they use something like Ingenuity as part of their work? Oh, absolutely. Um, Imagine that you were the first person in Colorado. You could either explore on your own, but suppose somebody offered you a drone helicopter that could send you pictures back. Wouldn't that be a huge advantage if you were the first explorer? So that's what we're looking to do. So it's a challenge to fly on Mars because there is so little air there, right? Yeah, the air is much thinner than even at the top of Mount Everest. So there isn't much lift. So the helicopter has to be very powerful, but very light. So the blades on Ingenuity are made of the same stuff as my uh, bicycle. Hmm. Very strong and very light frame. In fact, the helicopter was first proposed by the company founded by a guy named Paul McCready. And that name may be familiar to some listeners. Uh, A long time ago, he designed the human-powered plane called the Gossamer Albatross. And it was ultralight, and it was actually pedaled and flown by one human across the English Channel. It was human-powered, and the whole airplane weighed about 70 pounds. Well, Ingenuity only weighs four pounds, uh, and the blades spin really fast, 40 times a second. 
Uh, a student who worked with me, Marae Failer is her name, uh, she had a job testing Ingenuity on Earth before it went to Mars. Oh, that's exciting. So tell us something about Ingenuity's, Ingenuity's physical makeup. We know that it's made out of the same material as your bicycle, an ultralight carbon fiber. Um, what about its brain? Who's in control in there, the machine or the human? So Ingenuity has to be very smart. That's what Murray was working on. Uh, remember, a human can't pilot it because of that communications lag. So it has to um, think on its own. You know, if it sent a picture back to the Earth, remember, it takes five minutes to get here. So if you were trying to fly Ingenuity and there was some obstacle and you said, oh, turn left, turn left, it's going to crash, you know, 10 minutes, you're, you're too late. So it has to be very smart and have enough intelligence to uh, pre-plan and then execute uh, a flight all by itself. Kind of like a self-driving car, I would say. So this sounds difficult. Ingenuity did actually have a little bit of a glitch. It was supposed to fly earlier this month. What happened? Well, uh, before they flew, they spun up the blades to see if everything was going fine. And they noticed a little bit of something they didn't expect. So they messed with the software a little bit, you know, like a Microsoft update, and then everything was fine. So have you had a similar experience to those flight controllers back on the ground watching high stakes part of the mission like that? Give me a sense of the tension that they were going through both there and then when the Ingenuity actually flew for the first time. You know, I haven't been on a mission team myself, but I know lots of people who have. And what you have to appreciate is how long it takes to think of the idea, to plan it, to build it, to test it. And then everything has to go right. And if it doesn't, of course, there's nobody there to fix it. And that's where all the tension comes from. Imagine all those people applauding. They've probably been working five to 10 years to make this happen. Wow. And what is the next part of Ingenuity's mission? Is it going to be doing more flights? Um, it is. And uh, probably two or three, maybe even four more flights. And because it's a demonstration, uh, their plan is to push it to do more and more and more until it can't do anything more and probably ends up crashing on the last flight. Interesting. So they're going to push the envelope on purpose. So NASA's goal is to get humans to Mars sometimes in the 2030s, but there is an intermediate step. The agency wants to land humans back on the moon in less than five years. They awarded a contract for that recently. Tell me about that goal. So NASA now calls the return to the moon the Artemis program, after the classical name for the uh, goddess Artemis. And uh, less than five years is the plan. Put the first woman on the moon, the first astronaut of color. They may be getting there that soon. And the way they're going to do it, um, according to this recent announcement, they'll ride the Orion space capsule from Earth to the moon. And uh, Orion is built right here in Denver by Lockheed. And then when they're in lunar orbit, they'll transfer to the lander, which we now know will be built by SpaceX. And that will take them from orbit uh, around the moon down to the lunar surface, along with lots of equipment, because it's a pretty big lander, much bigger than uh, was used in Apollo. And then the same spacecraft will take them back up to lunar orbit and rendezvous, and they'll get into Orion and return to Earth. And then the SpaceX vehicle, which is called Starship, will remain in orbit around the moon, and it'll be there to take more astronauts and more cargo down on the next trip. It sounds like in some ways SpaceX is kind of like a little airplane making a regular trip, say, from Denver to D.C. then, right? 
Well, and you know, that's pretty important. Imagine if every time you took a flight, they threw away the airplane, <laughs> right? That's kind of the way we've been going into space, and it's not very sustainable. So having reusable spacecraft is, is very important. So NASA and SpaceX, they'll be cooperating. I gather they have very different approaches to space exploration, though, right? Oh, wow. They could hardly be more different. Elon Musk has a philosophy, and he, he says, fail fast to learn fast. If you're not failing, you're not innovating enough. And that really challenges the conservatism that big companies and, and big organizations like NASA usually follow. And the result of Elon Musk's uh, philosophy has been quite fascinating. SpaceX launches a new starship every few months. That's never been done before. In fact, there's a whole following on YouTube, and you can watch the latest SpaceX launch, watch the starship go up. And to be fair, so far, most of the launches have blown up. Uh, but each one does better than the one before, and they're using the same rocket to go up and then land, getting ready for reuse. So it's pretty remarkable how many launches and, and how much progress. During the same time of all those Starship launches, NASA has had one launch. So that's a really different approach to learning how to go into space. So doing it over and over and over again. So tell me, if we on a future trip go back to the moon and stay, Doug, what is the most interesting thing we could do there? Well, I'm going to claim two favorites, okay? <laughs> uh, the first one is we're going to land when we go back to the moon on the South Pole. And at the South Pole, the sun is barely above the horizon. And there are some craters that are always in shadow. And we now think that there's ice down in those craters. And if that proves to be true, it would be water we could use for living on the moon. And then my other favorite is the idea to put a radio telescope on the far side of the moon. Now, I love radio. Of course I do. Uh, but radio astronomers don't because broadcasts from the Earth, like Colorado Public Radio or even people's phones, interfere with a radio telescope. There's only one place to put a radio telescope with no interference, and that's the far side of the moon. And when you say that there is no interference from Earth, no, no signals from Colorado Matters or Colorado Public Radio and no signals from cell phones, um, what does that mean? What does that mean for what you can actually observe? Oh, it's great. And my favorite idea comes from Dr. Jack Burns, who's at CU Boulder. And he's been working 37 years on the idea to put a radio telescope on the far side of the moon. And here's why. It turns out that the clouds of hydrogen gas out there in space give off radio waves. So radio telescopes can detect them. And, and a lot of our listeners, I think, know that the further out into space you look, the further back in time you're looking. When you see Mars, you see it five minutes ago. When you see Alpha Centauri, a star that's four light years away, you see it four years in the past. Well, we think that a radio telescope on the moon could see 13 billion years into the past, all the way back to before the first stars and before the first galaxies, when the whole universe was just hydrogen gas. And if, if we could do that, then we would have a good chance of figuring out how was it that our universe made stars? That is 
wild to contemplate. It, it would be the ultimate look into the past, and that would be cool. <laughs> Doug, thank you for joining us. Doug Duncan is an astronomer and former director of the Fisk Planetarium at CU Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about all things space. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Mountaineer Christine Boscoff climbed more of the world's tallest peaks than any other American woman, a record that still stands. A lot of people, you know, they look at me and they, they're like, you're crazy, I would never go up there, you know, it's dangerous. The physical and mental challenge of the sport, of, of trying to push yourself as far as you can go to achieve the summit. In 2006, Boscoff and her climbing partner, who lived together in southwestern Colorado, disappeared while climbing a remote peak in China. Edge of the Map, The Mountain Life of Christine Boscoff is a book by Denver author Joanna Garten. It's now a finalist for the Colorado Book Awards in the creative nonfiction category. We spoke last April. Joanna, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Chris Boscoff climbed the 12th highest peak in the world in 1995. The 26,000-foot broad peak straddles the border of Pakistan and China. What did this accomplishment do for her reputation as a mountaineer? Great question. She, at that point, was relatively new to the sport, and she was climbing with her husband, Keith, who was a dozen or more years older than her. And she summited Broad Peak, but it was challenging. She gained quite a bit of knowledge about the power of big peaks, about weather patterns and decision-making. She and Keith had tried to summit two times and had failed. And on their third attempt, Keith decided to stay back at base camp, and Chris went ahead. She climbed with Scott Fisher, who at that point was the owner of Seattle guiding company Mountain Madness, Scott would later die on Mount Everest in 1996, and I think that's probably an event a lot of your listeners remember because it was chronicled in Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. So at that point, Mm. she and Scott went up and summited Broad Peak, uh, and she did it by herself without her husband, who had been her mentor. So at that point, it was a real awakening for her and, and really saw her trajectory going upward in the sport. But it wasn't all good news. She was there, like you said, with her husband, Keith Boscoff, and he didn't fare so well on the climb. What happened? That's right, yes. As I mentioned, they had tried to summit two times prior to her successful summit, and those two attempts were difficult. They faced wind and snow and were turned back, and they were still relatively green uh, in the sport, in particular Chris. So, On that third attempt, Keith stayed back at base camp. His eyesight had really begun to fail, which happens oftentimes at high altitude. So he stayed back. She went on ahead, uh, which was a real turning point professionally for her, but also in their marriage as well, because she was really on the rise and he was a bit stagnant, you know, being at least a dozen years older than her. Now, Chris thought of herself as a climber, not a female climber. What did women have to deal with in the elite climbing and mountaineering scene at that time? Yes, that's right. That's right. At that point, this was the mid-90s, there were very few American women who she could look up to in the sport. There was a British woman, there was an incredible Canadian high-altitude mountaineer, and a Polish woman also who had died a few years prior. But she didn't have many women she could look to locally, American women. So nonetheless, she got very hooked on the sport, and there were 
a handful of accomplished rock climbers who I think she did look up to, but um, it was challenging. There were very few high-altitude mountaineers who were female at that time. So she always focused more on who she was as an individual and really tried to downplay the fact that she was a woman. I think she found the hype about the fact that she was a woman doing these incredible things a little bit silly uh, and really did try to downplay her gender when it came to her sports. And what was different about Chris that she was able to climb with most male climbers when they turned down other women? Well, that's a good question. I think um, she was incredibly humble and very, um, very relatable. She had simply found something she loved to do. And as I said, she found it very silly that there was such a fuss about the fact that she was a woman in this sport that was dominated by men. She wasn't particularly comfortable bragging or speaking in front of crowds. I think if she were alive today, she'd be probably mortified at kind of having to chronicle all her achievements on social media. So she was very approachable, always very understated, a great sense of humor. And I think that was um, an attractive quality that drew many people to her, not just as a climber, but as a person as well. Now, Chris and her husband, Keith Boscoff, they bought Mountain Madness, that Seattle-based guiding company that Scott Fisher had co-founded. But Keith died not long after. Chris kept that guiding business, which took people up some of the world's most difficult mountains, and she kept climbing. In fact, she summited the world's highest peak, Mount Everest. Then she met Colorado and Charlie Fowler, who lived in Norwood, Colorado. They became partners in climbing and in life. Tell us a little bit about Charlie. Charlie. Oh, Charlie Fowler. He was... (laughs) was quite a character. He was, I guess, what we would call a quintessential dirtbag. He kind of came of age in the 70s and 80s in Boulder and then Telluride, making a name for himself and accomplishing first ascents of climbs all over Colorado. He was totally transparent about who he was and what he wanted in life. He loved climbing, but he was also a really gifted photographer He was an avid reader and a brother and a great friend, and uh, people just loved to be around him. They were really drawn to him. Um, But as I said, he really did live to climb and did odd jobs to make ends meet, carpentry, writing, dependent on the kindness of others, I guess you'd say, and really lived an incredibly frugal life as he made this name for himself in the world of rock climbing. Climber's climber. Uh, by 2006, yes. Chris had climbed six of the world's 14 8,000-meter peaks, the biggest mountains on the planet. And she and Charlie had fantastic climbing adventures around the world. But Rescuers in China's Sichuan province have said that they have located the body of one of two American mountain climbers. Chris and Charlie, they disappeared in western China. What peak were they climbing, and why did they choose that part of the world? Yes, great question. So as Chris and Charlie uh, aged, they became more interested in unexplored places. They were not as interested in large-scale expeditions, and they preferred to go to places that were very much off the grid. And Western Sichuan province in China was one area that they had been several times. And so they were back again in Western Sichuan. And they had a number of different mountains that they had targeted over about a one-month period. Uh, And the last mountain that they were planning to summit uh, was called Genyan, Genyan Peak. 
You visited the monastery at the base of that mountain and hiked to the area where they died. Describe the place where they spent their last days. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's so hard to describe. And I think I wrote about it a little bit in the book and described it almost like stepping into the pages of a fairy tale. It's this just spectacular area in western Sichuan province. Um, The Genyan Valley is just an area where there are peaks really surrounding you on all sides, rising to 19,000, 20,000 feet. They are rugged mountains, but just massive in scope. And it's just an area that's very unexplored. So very few Westerners traveled there then and, and now as well. So it's very much untouched and peaceful, almost magical. So really breathtaking beauty. And um, this monastery is just um, unbelievably beautiful. Tibetan Buddhist monks living really as simply as any humans can. And with all this beauty and this remoteness, it sounds like you're still describing a place where not a lot of people are going to climb these mountains. These aren't the ones that are on everybody's list. Right, right. Both then and now, you know, the peak that they were uh, targeting was Genyan, and it was twenty is 20,000 feet. So at the base of the mountain, it's about 16,000 feet. So it's just not, it's not an area that's easy to get to for Westerners. So it's just very, very hard to get to. And um, that made the search and um, rescue very difficult. So tell us what happened to Chris and Charlie. So Chris and Charlie had been bouncing around this part of China, as I mentioned, and they had left some details on the fact that they were heading to Ganyan, but definitely not prolific details by any means. And so it took some time once friends and family realized that they had gone missing uh, to uncover those details of where they were going. So that was challenging. And then once the search and rescue was activated, the terrain in that area um, was, as I said, very rugged and very much off the grid. So initiating a search and rescue operation at 16,000 feet was a challenge. And, you know, in addition there were a number of different efforts. There was an effort based in Telluride, an effort based in Seattle. And then obviously they had some coordination to do with officials in China. So it really did require a high level of coordination and translators and people with expertise in that area. Dealing with the politics of China was not easy. And on top of all of that, it was Christmas. So it was, it was tricky. So this huge effort by friends to find them, and Chris and Charlie's friends cared for them so much that they even did the arduous work of getting two peaks in southwestern Colorado named after them. What did the deaths of these two people mean to the climbing community? Well, that's a, that's a great question, too. It was, it was overwhelming. Uh, it really, I would say, shattered both of the communities, the communities of Telluride Norwood, as well as the community in Seattle, because both of them individually were really beloved, and as a couple, they were really at the top of their sport. Denver author Joanna Garten's book is Edge of the Map, The Mountain Life of Chris Boscov. We spoke last April, and now she's a finalist for the Colorado Book Awards in the creative nonfiction category.
Finally today, as vaccinations continue to roll out and the return of live music looks more promising, outdoor venues like Red Rocks and Levitt Pavilion are planning their schedules for the summer. Others, meanwhile, are postponing their concert seasons yet another year. Fans longing for Swallow Hill Music's summer concert series at the Denver Botanic Gardens will have to wait to see acts like Randy Newman and Mary Chapin Carpenter, who are tentatively scheduled for 2022. But while the big-name shows are scrapped for now, the gardens won't be silent. I remember darkness I've seen Stay close by Get lost in the deep. Evenings Alfresco is getting a reboot from its pandemic debut last summer. Multiple musical acts, mostly acoustic solos and duos, are stationed throughout the gardens while patrons walk around and enjoy the outdoor setting. The lineup is set to feature lots of local talent, including Denver singer-songwriter Patrick Detlefs. Left of the days when I was with you, sweet memories. All those moments just passing by, so I do forget after all this. Patrick Detlefs of Denver, just one of the hundred artists who will perform this summer as part of the Denver Botanic Garden's Evenings Alfresco. For those of us hungry for live music, the series has 20 dates on the books from June through August. Thanks for joining us today, and thank you to the team that makes this show a stroll in the garden. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Just like old times, we all used to be young.